Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have some rather impactful and certainly from a legal perspective, very, very interesting developments in the ongoing Activision Blizzard harassment lawsuit saga. If you haven't been following from the beginning, we do have a playlist recently renamed to Everybody versus Activision Blizzard, a legal view to talk about the fact that it's not just California suing the game publisher. It was, in fact, joined by investigations of various federal agencies and a lawsuit and immediate settlement by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which will be the subject matter of this video because the EEOC got a little bit upset at California and really, really read them the riot act, no pun intended, for prior California actions. Before we get started, however, I do want to remind folks that this channel is Patreon-supported, and as part of that support, one of the tiers that you can sponsor is sponsorship of a specific episode of this channel. And I want to give special thanks today to Falcus Vipus for sponsoring, making possible these kinds of legal and business discussions on YouTube in podcast form. We couldn't do it without folks like you. If you want to check out that Patreon, please do so. Thank you so much, Falcus Vipus. Now, In terms of the subject matter of this video, this is enormous. As we discussed earlier in this playlist, Everybody versus Activision, the EEOC did sue Activision Blizzard, did settle that lawsuit on the same day that they actually filed it, all as a plan for the EEOC and Activision to get a record in store for how this all works. And as part of that settlement, they did a couple of things. Most notably, the top line item that was reported on by various outlets was that Activision Blizzard was to set aside $18 million to pay to eligible claimants. In this case, women at Activision Blizzard that had been specifically harassed, discriminated against for their pregnancy, or otherwise retaliated against for one of those two reasons. As part of that process, they labeled in their consent decree, settlement agreement, how folks would get money. They said you'd turn your name in, you'd give Activision Blizzard and the EEOC consultants certain information. And upon receiving the distribution list, now reading from that decree, the claims administrator will mail via USPS priority mail to each eligible claimant on the EEOC's approved distribution list, a notice of eligibility and claim share amount, what percentage, what portion of the $18 million you are to receive, a release of claims form. You're going to get paid because you're going to otherwise release a future litigation that you might have against Activision Blizzard and a return envelope addressed to the claims administrator. All eligible claimants shall be provided an opportunity to consult an independent attorney to advise on the release of claims to which the EEOC is not a party. Defendants shall pay for up to one hour of attorney consultation to advise on the release of claims at the rate of $450 an hour for each eligible claimant. Yes, folks, lawyers are in fact pretty darn expensive. But that's how the EEOC was dealing with this. You're going to have a release form. That release is going to cover things that the EEOC is not a party to, but... Activision Blizzard is going to pay for an attorney that, as we'll see later on, you can select either off a list or of your own personal choice. The other concepts that were presented in this consent decree were that if that $18 million isn't totally and completely distributed out to the employees that were affected by Activision Blizzard, then the extra money is either going to be donated to charity related to advancing women in the video game and technology industries or put back into Activision Blizzard solely for the purpose of a diversity and inclusion fund to be used by ABK exclusively for diversity, inclusion, and equity efforts beyond the scope in terms of this decree. Now, when I read this the first time, I said, ah, that's how money gets back to Activision Blizzard. And it says the allocation between those funds and the diversity and inclusion amount 
will be decided by Activision Blizzard, but subject to approval by the EEOC. So it does sound like Activision Blizzard can play games with this a little bit. And California, in part, objected to this as well. Now, the last thing they objected to was something in Section 10 here that we need to note is entitled Claimant-Specific Injunctive Relief, which is a whole bunch of legal ease. But for your and my purposes, it means this is intended by the EEOC to provide some form of relief and redress to the individual women affected by what would be illegal actions on the part of Activision Blizzard or its personnel. And that's an important thing to understand. Here, Activision Blizzard agrees to, it's mandated by the EOC that Activision Blizzard do this, remove from the personnel files of each eligible claimant, again, those are the women affected, any references to the allegations related to sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, and or related retaliation, except to the extent that defendants must keep records of the allegations of any eligible claimant's involvement in this charge in order to effectuate the decree. Now, I will say this, this could be written better to cut off what is California's complaints here. But California reads this and says, well, you gave permission to Activision Blizzard to destroy evidence that we would otherwise need to litigate our claims. And California isn't exactly wrong in reading it that way, but whereas they could have asked for clarification, just making it clear that that isn't in fact what the EEOC intends, which would seem odd for the EEOC to intend it, California instead goes the other way and takes this consent decree and says, we're going to step in with an application on a speedy process called ex parte, where the other side wouldn't necessarily get to respond before the court did something, although that turns out to not have been the case in this particular instance, and says, court, we're stepping in. You need to stop this decree. It says, on July 20th, 2021, DFEH, which is the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, that's California for purposes of our conversation, filed its complaint. On September 27th, 2021, the EEOC filed the case on the, against the defendants and on the same date lodged a proposed consent decree with the court, including approval of a procedure to obtain releases of state claims to which the EEOC is not a party and EEOC lacks standing to prosecute. And that's not necessarily wrong. EEOC's underlying lawsuit alleges only federal claims, including discrimination, harassment, and retaliation claims under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That's federal law. And EEOC failed to alert the court of California's pending enforcement action before a state court under some local rules. In addition to EEOC's failure to comply with those notice requirements, which are a little bit more technical in nature, doesn't mean that it, they're not serious if the EEOC didn't do what they're supposed to do on this score. California objects to the merits of this whole thing. They say defendants failed to provide complete information in the proposed consent decree now lodged with the court. The proposed decree, for example, lacks a proposed notice, a claim form, a release form. It also provides no notice of DFEH's pending action, but seeks court approval of a procedure whereby EEOC and defendants arrange for outside counsel to assist with obtaining releases of state claims to which EEOC is not a party and EEOC lacks standing to prosecute under law. No information about defendants' potential liability, the maximum damage is recoverable in successful litigation, or the allocation and distribution of monetary relief is included in the proposed decree. In other words, California is sitting back and saying, you didn't provide us the forms that you're going to be using, but in no way have you indicated you tell folks about our state lawsuit and how much money they could win if we win that lawsuit. Now, of course, that's speculative in nature, which we'll see the EEOC respond to in and of itself. But California says they deserve more information on this, and we have no reason to believe that they are getting it. California continues, 
Unclaimed settlement funds also revert back to defendants and the decree proposes destruction or tampering of evidence necessary to the department's case. And finally, EEOC and defendants did not request a fairness hearing nor explain why the settlement is fair, adequate, or reasonable. Now, a couple of things are imputed there, all of which are a little bit odd, right? They are claiming that the settlement funds revert back to the defendants. That's not strictly accurate as we saw. The defendants can propose an allocation between charitable contributions and reverting back solely for the purposes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. But the EEOC gets final say there. And there's no indication that anything would be destroyed. We're going to talk about the reporting on this as part of this video. But California, reading this as an attorney that has no interest in this case, other than talking to you about it in Virtually Good, I don't have monetary interest. I do have a brother that works in the Activision Blizzard studios. I should disclose that up front so that you can evaluate my tilt for yourself, but isn't otherwise implicated in any of these kinds of things. I don't look at what the EEOC has proposed and see what California is accusing them of here. I don't see destruction. I don't see a reversion back to Activision Blizzard. That is something that the EEOC would have an interest in. I don't see any issues as described by California herein. They continue talking with more specificity. DFEH's pending enforcement action against Activision will be harmed by uninformed waivers that the proposed decree makes conditional for victims to obtain relief. The proposed consent decree also contains provisions sanctioning the effective destruction and or tampering of evidence critical to the department's case, such as personnel files and other documents referencing sexual harassment, retaliation, and discrimination. And they're, again, referring to that portion of the consent decree in which the EEOC actually orders Activision Blizzard to expunge certain information in those personnel files. Again, because the EEOC generally sees that as a good thing for the individual claimants, the women affected, you don't want to have in your personnel file something that suggests that you were investigated either for something that is directly illegal or is pretextual which is what happens oftentimes as well, where you have an employer that makes up a reason to investigate you because they're actually trying to fire you for the reasons that the EEOC finds to be illegal. So the EEOC regularly does this. It's pretty obvious that they regularly do this. It's pretty obvious by the contents of the document itself in the consent decree that this is intended to benefit the women affected and is not a request by Activision Blizzard. You see in things that the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing actually submits to the court that the EEOC says, we don't do these various things that you've accused us of. And we get into weird situations. Just talking about releases, here's the EEOC manual on these kinds of things. Individual relief and commission actions cannot be conditioned upon a waiver of legal claims other than those asserted in the commission's complaint. A claimant represented by private counsel can agree to a broader waiver, but in the absence of such an agreement, a represented claimant's recovery on the commission's claims cannot be conditioned on the release of any other claims. So you can see the infrastructure of the compromise that the EEOC and Activision Blizzard arrived at, which is we're going to try to ask for a release that's going to cover everything that might otherwise be touched upon by what you're looking at, EEOC, which was, in fact, limited to harassment. More on that in just a second. But if we have these private counsel kind of provisions, which, no, are not selected by Activision Blizzard, just paid for by them, then we can get into a situation where you could otherwise release us of claims you might have in a different lawsuit. The commission continues by saying, even though the commission is not a party to releases executed by claimants, EEOC attorneys are responsible for ensuring that no individual's relief is conditioned on waiver of any legal claim beyond those brought by the commission. So the state of California is bringing this manual up. We saw in another document that they presented it to the court so that the court is aware of it. 
that this should bind the EEOC in some capacity, but they skip the private counsel concept. And more importantly, the EEOC is going to say, uh, that's our manual. Trust us to be experts in it, not you. In respect of fairness hearings, it says, although a fairness hearing is not required in every commission class case, it's not required. It's not a requirement that the EEOC go through one of these hearings. It should always be considered and should be done wherever appropriate. California wants to hold their feet to the fire. So say, look, your own manual says we should have a fairness hearing whenever you deem it to be appropriate. The public has an interest in the outcome of your litigation. Of course, the EEOC also provides another page that says, hey, sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. In class case settlements, it may be appropriate to request the court conduct a fairness hearing before it approves the consent decree. Although there is no requirement that a fairness hearing be requested in any particular type of case, the district office should always consider fairness hearings in resolving class litigation. This section provides guidelines for the exercise of the regional attorney's discretion regarding whether to request a fairness hearing. So it's a federal agency, a lot of people underneath it. You give these manuals, you give instructions how people should think about exerting their judgment in these cases. They say, yeah, yeah, ask for a fairness hearing if there's reason to believe that there will be persons who wish to object to the settlement or if the formula is really weird. Now, as we pointed out in the consent decree, there isn't actually a formula so much. So that might be reason to have a fairness hearing is to say, well, all that consent decree says the EEOC will figure out how much money any individual claimant is owed based on their own judgment. Not really a calculation uh, so much. Now, it does say weighing against a fairness hearing is speediness. We don't want to unduly delay distribution of settlement funds. And I think this is an important point. A lot of you have come into my videos and said, why would you be allowed to just pay your way out of these claims? Why can Activision Blizzard just say, oh yeah, $18 million, not really a lot of money on our bottom line. We'll pay you, EEOC will go away. How is that allowed? Why shouldn't they be prosecuted? And the answer is the EEOC, like many other federal agencies, like many other state in industries and agencies, are trying to get redress for the people directly affected. Yes, they want to improve Activision. And part of their consent decree is actually having an EEOC person embedded in Activision, controlling a lot of their review process, their hiring, their firing, and things along those lines. And the EEOC considers that to be a big win. But in terms of the people that were directly harassed, that were directly retaliated against, one of the ambits of the EEOC is try to get those people money as fast as possible, try to get them that redress as fast as possible. And if you think that your litigation is likely to result in X amount of dollars, remembering, as we talked about in earlier videos, that in general, the EEOC has a cap on every incident in person of $300,000 for a company of Activision's size, then if we were to totally win after however many years of litigation, however many dollars were spent on attorney's fees, that that would look something like $18 million, then it makes sense for all parties to settle instead of paying the lawyers and instead of spending the time going through that process. And there's a certainty in a settlement arrangement that you just don't have with litigation. Litigation at the end of the day is in the minds of either a judge or 12 people that you're trying to teach all of these issues to on the fly with so many important factors either going over their heads or otherwise just struggling to make sense. Jury trials are great, totally necessary part of the constitutional process, but they are in no small part the reason why litigation is often disfavored against settlement. Similarly, we can look in their sample settlement agreements to find out that this was not an Activision Blizzard request, as was reported on in a number of locations, some of which we will talk about as part of this video. Resignation with file expungement is in one of their sample documents. It says, you are ordered to issue within 30 calendar days of this date of the agreement a form certifying that the appellant voluntarily resigned for personal reasons, right? This is a settlement concept in which somebody was fired. The EEOC thinks that firing was illegal. You're going to change their personnel file to say they voluntarily resigned. And you also agree to provide the appellant with a clean record by expunging all references to the adverse action you took. 
from their official personnel file. That you're going to make things right because you weren't allowed by law to take the actions that you took, whether that was a firing, lack of a promotion, an investigation, whatever it might be, you're going to get those out of the personnel file. And that's part of a standard EEOC consent decree. Now, along with all of this, along with these kinds of odd arguments that the state of California is making, they're also submitting odd things. One of the documents they submitted to the court was to give the court notice of a number of articles. Let's take a look at them. A cheat sheet for Activision Blizzard's woes from Law 360. How about a Kotaku article entitled Labor Union Suggests $18 million Activision Blizzard Settlement Akin to Pennies? Or Activision Blizzard Settles for Less This Week in Business Publisher Pledges to Set Up $18 Million Fund for People It Never Wronged as Government Regulator Avoids the Distraction of a Lawsuit, which was done at gamesindustry.biz. If you look at these articles and you look at the kind of California argument in total, it seems clear that they're upset about what a lot of folks were upset about, which is that $18 million number. Activision Blizzard, huge company, $18 million seems a pittance, but it doesn't take into account the EEOC's limitations. It doesn't take into account that it is only directed at people actually affected, which if you take $300,000, you put it into 18 million, would suggest the EEOC believes there are potentially 60 cases that could receive recompense, if not more, if it's less than the $300,000 cap for any individual instance. And so the EEOC believes there are a number of people Activision Blizzard is willing to settle at a fairly high number for this particular Title VII action and EEOC complaint. And yet it gets reported on in ways that the state of California is trying to use to establish that the settlement is unfair. Speaking of Kotaku, it got reported in some fairly unfair ways itself. This is a headline item from late last week entitled California Steps In to Prevent Activision Blizzard Destroying Sexual Harassment Evidence. Now, if you remember, the state of California actually amended their original complaint against Activision Blizzard to include an accusation that they were shredding evidence or otherwise not providing or retaining evidence that they should have been able to provide or that they should have retained in compliance with various statutes and other requirements. As I pointed out, California didn't have great timeline, didn't have great dates in that new section. Activision Blizzard could be the worst actor in the world, could be shredding things they have to keep even in pending litigation, but the state of California didn't quite make that case. But they did set up a landscape in which a document like the one filed against the EOC gets picked up in places like Kotaku with this kind of headline that, oh, Activision Blizzard is trying to destroy things again. This is actually reported as an Activision Blizzard request, right? The settlement includes a clause which requests that Activision Blizzard be able to remove any allegations of sexual harassment from the personnel files of settlement claimants, indicating, implying that Activision Blizzard went out of its way to ask for this kind of concept so that they could destroy the documents and twirl their mustache or whatever else it is that they do in their Cosby suite. Right? But that wasn't fair. As we just discussed, that's not how this all works. When you look at the EEOC documents, you see that everything California complained of isn't really in existence in their document itself, including the notion of file expungement. So as I do sometimes when I'm on Twitter, I tried to correct the record a little bit just so people could understand what's going on. There's good reason to look hard at Activision Blizzard for any number of instances and reports that are going on online. I have no problem with anybody doing that. But as I said in a different tweet that isn't included in this video, you got to make sure you're aiming the gun the right way. Because when you report it and it comes out like this way, you get into a whole boy cried wolf scenario. And unfortunately, that was the case with Alana Pierce, who I'm including here not to call out. In fact, I'm calling her out, if anything, 
to show that I think that she really did come around and start understanding the issue with an open mind, which is good for these kinds of questions because that's how you get better reporting. That's how you get more accurate attacks on people that deserve to be attacked, on companies that deserve to answer for whatever it is that they have done. But she started out with the following. Sort of feels like trying to destroy evidence of sexual harassment means that commitment you made to a safer workplace probably isn't being committed to, but maybe that's just me. And somebody wound up quote tweeting me, that's how I actually found out about this conversation to Alana. And she said, well, look, I read the article before posting my tweet and it isn't based on the headline. She quotes a clause which requests that Activision Blizzard be able to remove any allegations. The, the very quote that we just highlighted. It says, unless the suggestion is Kotaku is wrong entirely. And so I took the time, I looked at it and I said, well, look, bare minimum, it's improperly framed. It's not an Activision request to be able to do anything. It's an EEOC order, a mandate that Activision Blizzard must remove things related to what would be unlawful labor actions from the affected employees' own records. The EEOC thinks that's important and always has because things like investigations serving a discriminatory purpose appearing in a personnel file can have negative effects for the employee. I think everybody understands that. Further, the expungement requirement doesn't change any of ABK's other existing file retention requirements, including the obligation to keep documentation related to a pending litigation. So understand this. So Activision Blizzard's had a rough few months. They are under fire from all sorts of different angles. And when they are under fire, they've got certain record retention responsibilities. One of the most important of which is not spoiling evidence that could otherwise inform a pending litigation, like the one with the state of California and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. So they have this obligation already. The fact that they have to change the personnel files to comply with this consent decree, which is going to take a little while in and of itself in order to get that information and to get that order from the EEOC about which files have to be changed, doesn't mean they get to destroy evidence that is otherwise related to a different pending litigation. And I think people miss that. The state of California missed that in their document, although since they are lawyers, since they are a state agency, you do have to question some of the motivation in that document because it's at bare minimum construing everything that the consent decree says in as negative a light as possible. And if you don't want to give them the benefit of that doubt, a lot of what they say there seems willfully ignorant of what the EEOC actually does and what is likely to be a part of the actual practical on the ground results of that settlement between Activision and that agency. I continue, I say, giving California the benefit of the doubt and assuming they see Activision as a slippery actor, there's nothing really wrong with asking the court to clarify that fact that Activision can't destroy documents facing the department lawsuit but the framing of all this by Kotaku is almost entirely reversed. Hope that helps. Happy to chat sometime. And I wanted to give credit here. Alana Pierce says, thank you for this. And in her own kind of thread here, she winds up retweeting that kind of conversation and pointing out that she doesn't think that the Kotaku headline really made a lot of sense, even though Activision Blizzard has done enough bad stuff to continue to look at them, which is a concept with which I agree. Now, that's reporting. That's what California did. And here's really why I wanted to make this video. The EEOC is very, 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 very unhappy about what California did. So much so that the arguments that they present against California are not only kind of personal based, actually arguing with California about their reasoning, about their legal acumen, about why they're doing this. But more importantly, for those of you that are directly interested in the Activision Blizzard case itself and potentially seeing Activision Blizzard hoisted on various petards in front of the state of California, attacks the state of California's case directly on procedural and ethical grounds that could really bring down that whole house of cards or at least delay it 
for a very, very long period of time. So with that as the introduction, let's talk about what the EEOC actually responded with. Now, first, we're going to look at this document, which is what we would have expected to see the EEOC file in response to a request like the one that California put forth to say, no, 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 you can't accept that consent decree. Pause all of this. We don't want you to allow it for these reasons. Here's the document in which the EEOC responds to the merits of the state of California's claims. This is going to be a long read. We're going to look at it. I'm mostly going to let the EEOC talk for themselves with limited commentary. But before I do, I want to point out one thing. This is not actually the formal response that the EEOC made. This is an exhibit to that response. This is an exhibit that says in that actual response, which we're going to be looking to after this document, that this is the real reason why the court should kick all of this out and potentially more, including the Activision Blizzard case itself. But if you don't buy that, then here are the reasons on the merits that this should all be rejected. So we're going to start here because this is the conversation that we usually have. But understand that a very special and unique set of circumstances are what the EEOC actually filed. You can skip ahead in the chapter descriptions, which I will include as part of this video if you're interested to just go straight there. But for now, we're going to start with what are the responses to what California said itself, a lot of which you will find match what I've already told you. The EEOC has entered into a proposed consent decree with the defendants following a three-year investigation and months of arm's-length negotiations between the parties. The proposed decree is a comprehensive agreement under federal law covering all defendants, including their locations in multiple states. DFEH now seeks to intervene and objects to the decree, potentially derailing relief for hundreds of harmed individuals. Now, this is the first instance where we actually see any kind of number that the EEOC has attached to this claim. I said 300,000 divides into 18 million at a 60 claimants level, but of course, not everybody's going to be entitled to that highest possible capped amount. So it's going to be higher than 60. EEOC implicitly has said it's going to be more than 60. Here, they say hundreds. So there are hundreds of affected individuals. Activision Blizzard really did have a significant problem. Uh, and unfortunately, as part of a settlement decree like this one, we probably won't actually understand the breadth of it, which I understand is why a number of folks complain about this process. And frankly, I don't really blame them. Continuing, in this case, the EEOC has again obtained significant monetary and injunctive relief in the proposed decree, which, if approved, will provide $18 million to harmed individuals nationwide and transform defendants' policies and procedures for preventing and correcting harassment with external monitoring by both an EEO consultant with expertise in EEO law and the EEOC itself, backed by the power of compliance enforcement in this court. Probably part of the story as to why a complaint was filed and then that consent decree is you want to have the court have some more backing to enforce this kind of document. The court should deny the department's motion for several reasons. First, the DFEH lacks standing under Rule 24 and controlling legal precedent to intervene or object because it lacks a legally cognizable interest in this federal proceeding presenting a federal question. Hey, look, Congress gave us, the EEOC, the right to enforce Title VII. The state of California at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing level or any other level doesn't have an interest in how we do our business under the federal act that gave us power. Second, the federal claims included in this resolution and their state law analogs are claims that the department expressly agreed not to pursue under a work sharing agreement and a specific agreement between the two agencies involving these claims. Wait, what? What was that? The EEOC and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, the state of California, agreed to split up the claims and their investigations related to the same. Put a pin in that. That's going to be super important as part of this discussion because it's also going to explain 
as we mentioned, if you've watched this entire playlist, why the EEOC's complaint doesn't include any reference to the pay discrimination, the promotion discrimination, the actual things related to employment at Activision Blizzard that were otherwise part of the original EEOC charging order. I had said when I analyzed their consent decree in the first instance that it was unique that they didn't include those particular concepts. As it turns out, what was supposed to happen was a split that ultimately didn't happen because the state of California, at least according to the EEOC, went out of bounds. Third, the decree does not resolve anything apart from federal Title VII claims. Relevant facts. In February 2018, the EEOC received an anonymous complaint from a human resources employee of Defendants Blizzard Entertainment, Inc. This is an important part of the story. So we had thought the EEOC originally started in 2020. The consent decree said 2018. It's not middle or late 2018. It's February 2018. And specifically from an employee of Blizzard, not Activision Blizzard proper, not Activision Publishing, elsewhere. Blizzard itself. On September 26th, 2018, one of the EEOC's commissioners, which opened an investigation of the allegations raised in the anonymous complaint, filed the commissioner's charge. In October of 2018, about one month after the commission had filed its charge, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing of California filed a director's complaint against Blizzard and later added Activision Blizzard and Activision Publishing. Order of operations actually matters here. What we are going to be describing in this document and the actual response that the EEOC filed is a jurisdictional fight. If you've ever watched TV shows where the police officers are looking at the murder scene and then the FBI rolls in and they're upset about it, or maybe you're just a big fan of Die Hard, you know that these jurisdictional fights can actually be relatively uh, one-sided. The federal government often controls these kinds of things, and the EEOC right now is filing a document in which they are, to put it in legal parlance, pissed. And they're pissed about the fact that the EEOC overstepped its bounds and then went after the decree that the EEOC had negotiated with a little bit of ethics problems that are going to be a part of the EEOC's primary answer. But that's the situation. They say, hey, we went first. They put that in the opening paragraph. To be clear, first in time is going to solve a lot of jurisdictional issues at both the federal and state level. Federal is saying here, hey, we had ours in February. You had yours in September. Bare minimum, that gives us certain rights. They continue... At that time, the EEOC and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing had a work-sharing agreement in place. This work-sharing agreement gave the EEOC the right to investigate all charges filed by its own commissioners, as well as first-in-time charges. In the spirit of cooperation and efficiency, the EEOC met with the department to discuss dividing the responsibility so that each agency would investigate different claims. After months of negotiations, the agencies agreed in writing in 2020. Now... (laughs) Understand, the last date we had heard was September 2018. So yes, that's months insofar as you can say anything is months, but that actually is closer to years that it took the EEOC and the department to come up with this particular split. It says the EEOC would investigate harassment allegations and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing would investigate discrimination claims, such as pay and promotion claims. In this agreement, the department explicitly agreed not to investigate harassment claims. Now, if you've been following this story from the very beginning, you know that when the state of California filed its lawsuit, it included maybe 90% of its document was this kind of pay discrimination concept, which has its own issues in terms of proving. But what really made headlines were the three paragraphs or so of claims of sexual harassment, which the EEOC is now spending time in a federally filed document saying that they had agreed not to investigate. 
In reliance on the interagency agreement, the EEOC narrowed the scope of its own investigation to sexual harassment and related retaliation, relinquishing its right to investigate federal pay and promotion claims. The EEOC entered into that agreement to protect the public and especially harmed individuals from the confusion and re-traumatization that would result from two agencies requesting that they share the same sensitive facts. And you might sit back and think, well, it's good for the EEOC and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing and everybody else that could possibly have an interest to investigate all of these issues. But a lot of the time, that's not in fact the case. The EEOC has a lot of these work-sharing kind of agreements. They have an interagency agreement here to, as they say, not ask the same question twice, not to jump on each other's toes. And the Department of Fair Employment and Housing in California appears to have just skipped right by that to file their lawsuit. And so the EEOC right now is a federal agency scorned. And then the state of California actually files a complaint about their settlement agreement and the EEOC busts out all the weaponry against the state of California, as we will see. Now, one thing that kind of goes against the EEOC's primary argument here, which is that, oh, the state of California overstepped its bounds, is here in footnote two, where it says, well, the commission's investigation also found evidence of pregnancy discrimination, which had not been included in the interagency agreement, leading to its inclusion in this action. But the interagency agreement, as described above, talks about discrimination claims in general that should go to the department in California. So by actually changing their ambit from not just harassment, but to also to pregnancy discrimination, it confuses this whole issue a little bit. So if you want to see things on the side of California, you could use footnote two to say, oh, the EEOC is playing fast and loose as well. On June 15th, 2021, the EEOC completed its over three year long investigation and issued its findings in a letter of determination. Pursuant to the interagency agreement, EEOC sent this letter of determination to the department and invited the department to participate in a potential resolution as it entered into statutorily mandated conciliation talks with the defendants. The EEOC did not receive any response from the department. This will be a part of the EEOC's argument, which says, look, we invited you to come have these conversations with us. We're in an interagency cooperation alliance, and you just decided not to. Instead, on or about July 20th, 2021, the department filed a complaint in state court, including a sexual harassment claim. So what was unclear before this document was filed was that the EEOC and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing had been working together and had split the discrimination and harassment charges in a manner that makes it a little more clear why the EEOC didn't include any kind of paid discrimination charges in their own document. It wasn't because they didn't necessarily find any evidence of them. It was because they agreed that they wouldn't investigate that part of the company. It confused issues because the state of California came hard and fast with the harassment claims and the EEOC has a problem with that as well. Now, first we start out by saying they shouldn't be allowed to intervene because no statute allows them to intervene. It says in Title VII, Congress anticipated the issues of overlapping jurisdiction with fair employment practices agencies, FIPAs, which if you like government documents or statutes, you know, they have a lot of these various kinds of acronyms. When you see FIPA here, they're referring to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, California itself which might arise and provided that in such cases, FIPAs and the EEOC should cooperate pursuant to work-sharing agreements to achieve their common goals. It also included a dispute mechanism. Thus, if the department had a dispute with the EEOC regarding which agency had responsibility for investigating which claims, the work-sharing agreement provided an avenue for redress. The department has never invoked that dispute resolution procedure available to it under the work-sharing agreement. Congress could have provided for intervention rights for FIPAs, as it did for charging parties, but it did not. Instead, Congress viewed their role as one of cooperation with the EEOC rather than intervention in EEOC enforcement actions. 
in the absence of a statute conferring an unconditional right to intervene, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 24A2 governs a party's application for intervention. The Ninth Circuit, where California is located, requires that would-be interveners make a showing of all the following four elements in order to gain permission to intervene as of right. One, the would-be intervener has a significant protectable interest relating to the property or transaction that is the subject of the action. Two, the disposition of the action may, as a practical matter, impair or impede the applicant's ability to protect its interest. Three, the application is timely. And four, the existing parties may not adequately represent the applicant's interest. Now, I highlighted the first two for you there because what the EEOC is really going to focus on is that the department doesn't have a protectable interest in how the EEOC decides to enforce and or settle Title VII claims. And to my eye, that's pretty darn strong. The department has an interest in enforcing California rules against Activision Blizzard, as it has with its litigation. But when we start talking about federal laws, the interest is a lot harder to claim. Continuing on, says further, motions to intervene by government agencies such as the department are denied where the powers of the agency seeking intervention are not at issue or are incidentally affected, as here, where the department is only pursuing claims under FEHA in its state court lawsuit and does not seek to raise a Title VII claim in this court, which is what the EEOC based their claim on. And then we get a little bit more description of why the EEOC feels this way. The department lacks a cognizable interest. It says the department lacks a legally cognizable interest in this federal litigation under Title VII and resorts to rampant speculation to insert itself in this case and derail relief for potential claimants. We're getting into the EEOC is irritated kind of mode. That's about as close to a subtweet as a federal agency is likely to get in a document. Rampant speculation to insert itself effectively where it doesn't belong. In grasping at ways to show that this decree would affect its interests, the department makes the following assertions. One, that the proposed decree waives state law claims or that individuals are required to waive state law claims under the proposed decree. Two, that the proposed decree calls for the destruction of evidence relevant to the pending lawsuit. And three, that the proposed decree includes a reversion which will confuse potential claimants as to the amount recoverable. All three of these assertions are patently incorrect. First, the proposed decree creates a voluntary claims process that does not implicate the department's interests. If the proposed decree is signed, it will release the EEOC's Title VII claim and leave every other existing claim intact. If Activision Blizzard signs the consent decree, basically nothing happens other than the fact that the EEOC has released its claim against Activision Blizzard. However, what the state of California is really worried about is those affected women. EEOC continues, each potential class member, those are the ladies, will have a choice whether to release their individual claims and collect from the class fund under the proposed decree. They're not forced to do anything under the decree. They can decide to go a different direction, including being a part of the state of California lawsuit instead of the EEOC side of things. As the EEOC continues, says, if any individual class member does not want to collect from the class fund or release her claims, she is not required to do so. This is an opt-in decree, not an opt-out decree. Under the terms of the proposed decree, individuals who are found eligible for relief will receive private legal representation from a referral list of respective plaintiff's employment lawyers or a lawyer of their choice at no cost to them. Although the EEOC is not a party to any release between claimants and employers, the EEOC has had a long-standing position that releases incidental to its consent decrees cannot contain any provisions that are contrary to public policy. Accordingly, defendants have agreed that the releases here will not include, among other things, arbitration agreements, confidentiality or non-disclosure provisions, non-disparagement provisions, or no rehire clauses. Defendants have also agreed to specifically notify potential claimants 
of the state of California's lawsuit in the text of the release, including the claims included in that lawsuit. Now, the state of California has a good point to some extent here to say, hey, you never filed your release form. So all we have to go on is that they'll be asked to file a release form and that you're giving them private counsel, presumably to allow them to release more than the EEOC brought against them that the settlement agreement directly relates to. The state of California is right there and the EEOC tacitly admits it by saying, look, they're gonna have this private legal representation. Activision has agreed not to have these other provisions. After they get counsel from those lawyers, then they can decide for themselves whether they want to accept the amount of money that the EEOC would give them or whether they want to roll the dice or go with the settlement on the state of California side. The state of California doesn't like that, but EEOC says that's not really our problem. Further, the EEOC is the expert on the implementation of its own manual. The department overreaches by attempting to instruct a federal agency on its own policies and fails to grasp them. And insert footnote three. The department does not appear to publicly provide its guidelines for settlement or to have made public any of its internal guidelines. As will be discussed further below, the department also does not regularly file its consent decrees or agreements with employers in a manner that is readily available to the public. The EEOC is here being criticized for its transparency with a level of scrutiny under which the department does not allow itself to be placed. Yeah, the department is a hypocrite, Your Honor, because they don't allow any of their documents to be reviewed and are now complaining about ours. It's not going to get any better for the de department in California than it is here. Contrary to the department's claim, EEOC followed its manual. The provision regarding release of claims beyond Title VII explicitly allows them, as long as the eligible claimant is represented by counsel, as will be the case here. The department has, as it points out in its motion, requested the names of individuals identified as potential claimants by the EEOC more than once, stating it would like to advise them about their rights with respect to any release under state law. It would be highly inappropriate for either the EEOC or the department to advise individuals regarding the releases because both agencies have an institutional interest that may diverge from the interests of the individuals. And this is important stuff and it's gonna come up again. If you're not a lawyer, if you haven't hired a lawyer, you might not be familiar with conflict of interest as a concept, but suffice it to say, and this is probably pretty intuitive, a lawyer is called to represent their own client with zealous advocacy. And that means that if a lawyer is representing, let's say the DFEH or the EEOC, and an individual might be better off not agreeing to a settlement or doing something different or complaining about a specific term, the lawyer for the EEOC or the department in California is going to have a conflict of interest, is going to be in a poor position to advise that individual. So the EEOC in terms of ethics rules is entirely correct here. And that's what makes this next section a little bit worse. It says, moreover, in contrast to the approach in the proposed decree, the department sent an email to employees of the defendants advising them that obtaining their own counsel would be misleading or confusing and requesting that individuals contact the department if a lawyer sought to represent them individually. And they include the quote here in the email. They say, we also wanted to follow up and alert you that you may be contacted by private attorneys seeking to become your attorney for this case. It is unnecessary and may be misleading or confusing. A private attorney would have to file suit in your name or get the court's permission for you to intervene as a named plaintiff in this matter. Please let us know if any attorney attempts to solicit your business for this case. Now, to some extent, I think that the notice provided by the department in California has a certain amount of merit to say, look, you might get some ambulance chasers when they see all this in the headlines. You probably don't need one. 
And probably the message should stop there or say, hey, you might need one. Contact us if you think that you do. They don't say that. They instead say it is unnecessary, which should never, ever be the case. Regardless of whether or not you're going to sue under your own name, it's always advisable to have a lawyer review a contract you're being asked to sign. If I'm faced with a set of release forms, the end state of which is I get some money, but I'm not allowed to sue Activision Blizzard or potentially other parties because I'm getting that money, it makes sense for me to have a lawyer looking that over for me. And in fact, that's what the consent decree actually provides. But an email like this suggests, oh, you never need one. Just, just call us. And the EEOC is rightly calling out the state of California for saying, hey, look, you've got political considerations. You want that settlement to go through. You want everybody to sign, whatever it might be. You've got a reason to back it up yourself. Individuals can have conflicting interests to federal and state agencies this is all untowards. And like I said, it only gets better for the state of California from here. This conduct is at odds with both state and federal law under which aggrieved individuals have an absolute right to their own counsel related to government and a discrimination enforcement action such as this one. An attorney providing advice to individuals that it is against their interest to seek counsel is also against the rules of professional responsibility. This is a straight call out of the state of California for acting unethically against their own rules. It says that in that quote, if the lawyer knows or reasonably should know that the interests of the unrepresented person are in conflict with the interests of the client, which would be the state of California or the EEOC respectively, the lawyer shall not give legal advice to that person except that the lawyer may, but is not required to, advise the person to secure counsel. Under the interagency agreement and the previous practices of the agencies working together to resolve or litigate cases, the EEOC fully expects that the department will have the ability to present class members in its state action with releases that include waivers of federal pay and promotion claims. The EEOC has not requested the names of individuals with such pay and promotion claims in order to advise them of their quote-unquote federal rights or to caution them against seeking counsel. Ultimately, the department's true goal here is to force individuals to recover only through its lawsuit. Here, the EEOC is actually accusing the state of California of being untoward, whether that's for political or other ends is unclear. But the EEOC is clearly upset and in that footnote calls out what the department had done with the riot settlement. In an unrelated case, the department has also intervened and objected to pre prevent private plaintiffs who negotiated a $10 million settlement in the riot case from resolving that case and has since been roundly criticized by plaintiff's lawyers in that case. Here, says the EEOC, the department continues to overreach beyond its mandate from the California state legislature in an attempt to block the efforts of others who are also fighting for civil rights. Essentially, it's California's way or the highway. Continuing with the EEOC's complaint, the proposed decree does not require the destruction of any evidence. To protect potential claimants from future retaliation, the proposed decree requires that documents referencing the allegations be removed from their personnel files, not destroyed. The department states that the decree allows preservation only for the purposes of complying with the decree. This is inaccurate. The decree says the documents are to be maintained for this purpose and is silent with respect to other record-keeping obligations. That they are relevant to current litigation independently requires that they not be destroyed under rules against spoilation. That's correct. Could that consent decree be written better? Yes, much. Class members in EEOC enforcement actions commonly request that information about their charges and participation in protected activity be segregated from their personnel files to prevent future retaliation. There will be a record of the fact that such a change has been made, which the department can seek in its lawsuit these anti-retaliation provisions are standard in EEOC decrees that have been approved by this court, and they include a footnote to that, see all these times that you've done that, and these provisions intended to benefit workers 
in no way impact the department's ongoing lawsuit. Further, the fund itself is not a reversion and isn't deceptive. Importantly, the EEOC says the allocation of any money in these funds may be approved by the EEOC. The Cypress provision was included in this case because the department unexpectedly brought a sexual harassment claim during the course of the negotiation. So here the EEOC says, this is California's fault. As we have emphasized herein, we encourage individuals to make the choice that is best for them regarding whether they prefer to proceed under the federal or the state case. However, given this dynamic where some individuals may choose to proceed with the state, it is conceivable that some money from our class fund will be left over. While we intend to make every effort to distribute all funds to eligible claimants, the potential for any undistributed funds would not be present absent the actions of the department itself. And again, that depends a lot on how the release actually looks. If the EEOC is only asking for a release of the harassment side of things, then yes, the state of California bringing that into it confuses this issue pretty substantially. If it's broader than that, well, then the EEOC might be making an argument that's a little bit stronger than fully accurate. Either way, the EEOC, like the rest of this document, is putting the issue here at the feet of California. Further, they say the department cannot credibly raise concerns about the lack of releases. It is difficult to find publicly filed department decrees and or agreements. In the vast majority of its cases, the agreements are not filed in court so they can be scrutinized by the public. DFEH agreed to a provision in one of those documents whereby if a certain percentage of potential claimants did not come forward, all of the monetary relief would be returned to the employer. So the department cannot position itself as the arbiter of fairness of other agencies' decrees when it does not allow its own agreements to be scrutinized and has agreed to provisions that are patently unfair. Your Honor, check out this string citation list of cases in which the department in California doesn't share any information with anybody. Further, the department's interests are adequately represented by the EEOC. The specific issues raised by the department are merely differences in strategy, which are not enough to justify intervention. The department was invited to coordinate with the EEOC several times during and after the EEOC concluded its investigation, including most recently when the EEOC notified the department it was entering conciliation talks, but the department did not accept the offer. So, Your Honor, their motion here is untimely because they rejected participation in all of this because they were working on their own lawsuit, which has created this entire problem. And the differences between Title VII and the California law are not material. Even if we accepted arguendo that Title VII was comparatively weak, which we emphatically do not, it is hard to see how this weakness is relevant to any issue in this action, which includes only a Title VII claim and no claim under the FEHA. To the extent we do distinguish the two laws, it is plain that an FEHA claim would result in narrower relief. California's law is worse. Title VII applies nationwide and is the vehicle through which the proposed decree provides relief to defendants many out-of-state employees. In contrast, the department's lawsuit will necessarily exclude non-California employees. In addition, the department can and does pursue attorney's fees and costs, which the EEOC does not, instead providing all the money obtained as relief. According to a department press release, the attorney's fees and costs it collects go back into its own budget. My goodness. DFEH stresses that the federal claims in the lawsuits have caps that apply to compensatory damages, but the DFEH cannot show that this difference will result in any claimant receiving less relief than she would under state law. Apart from the fact that this is the second largest harassment resolution in the EEOC's history nationally and the largest in this district, it is extremely speculative to argue from outside the negotiation process, which again, they didn't participate in, that more could have been obtained. 
to the extent the department implies to any harmed individuals that their recovery will be greater in the state action, it is also being irresponsible with respect to its ethical duties. Attorneys owe an ethical duty not to guarantee or even imply a guarantee of any specific result in litigation. The department has advanced a framing of this case in which the settlement value should be compared to the operating budget of the company or the pay of executives. In fact, that's how so many of the journalistic outlets went out with the story. $18 million out of the amount Activision Blizzard makes? That's ridiculous. But the department knows that achieving large punitive damage awards is rare, risky, and requires a judgment after trial, after which the award is often reduced on appeal or by the sitting judge. Whether it would, in some sense, be ideal to peg damages to CEO pay for deterrence purposes is not an issue here. Neither statute, Title VII, nor the FEHA provides for this. It's a policy question, Your Honor. Maybe it would be better if we could go get $180 million. But that's not what our statute provides. That's not what the California statutes provide. Several factors beyond the underlying laws affect settlement negotiations, including the particular facts of the potential claimants identified, calculations regarding the size of the potential class, reticence of some potential claimants to litigate, and most of all, avoidance of the risk inherent to litigation in favor of the certainty of settlement. Yes, it might be better to go get $18 million, but this is one of the highest awards we've ever received, and the state of California doesn't have an interest, nor the ability even under its own statute to complain about that amount of money. And then we get some more technical issues about whether or not everything is fair. It says, in this case, the EOC respectively requests that deference be afforded to the commission's negotiation, which significantly advances the public interest and fulfills the critical mission of eradicating employment discrimination under federal law. Again, probably going a bit too far, EEOC. I'm not sure that just having a consultant in Activision fulfills the mission of eradicating employment discrimination under federal law, maybe contributes to, maybe something a little smaller, but fair enough. Lawyers are, of course, lawyers. The proposed consent decree is fair, adequate, and reasonable. The proposed decree is fair because it provides significant monetary compensation for eligible claimants subjected to sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, and or related retaliation. The amount of relief is patently adequate. It is one of the largest amounts ever achieved by the EEOC's Los Angeles District Office for any case, and also one of the largest amounts ever achieved by the EEOC as a whole for a sexual harassment case. Additionally, the decree is fair because defendants have agreed to comprehensive injunctive relief through which defendants will create safeguards and protections for current and future employees to ensure that they are protected from future violations of Title VII. Nowhere does the department criticize the subject of the injunctive relief obtained, focusing only on the money, claims process, and victim-specific relief. This is because the injunctive relief aimed at charging defendants, changing defendants' culture is extremely comprehensive. In particular, the designation of an external third-party EEO consultant to conduct audits and oversee investigations, complaint handling, and disciplinary measures is intended to measurably improve defendants' employment practices. And, and what goes unsaid here by the EEOC is that every part of that consent decree is chips moving on a table between the parties. So Activision Blizzard might agree to the EEOC consultant and X, Y, or Z provision in that consent decree for not paying $20 million and instead paying $18 million. And all of these are on sliding scales. So one of the most effective points that the EEOC raises, in my opinion, in this document is saying the department in California could have sat at the table here and talked through all these issues with all the constituent parties. They elected not to do so. So you shouldn't reward that effort, your honor, with them being allowed to intervene in what is a settled decree when they didn't participate in any of the process. Furthermore, the reasonableness of a proposed decree should be measured against the cost of litigation and the potential outcome if the case went to trial. 
And the decree need not include some of the things that were requested by the department. There's no requirement that to be fair or just, an EEOC decree must explain what workers' potential monetary recovery could be in successful litigation. No court has ever required a decree to include that figure as a prerequisite for meeting fairness standards. And we've got now in footnote 10, the department knows that employment class cases are not valued based on the unreasonable assumption that every single worker has a valid claim and will come forward to accept relief. This is where the EEOC is rejecting the department's monetization here, saying, oh, if you get $18 million, here are the total amount of people that possibly could get that money, including men, as part of that calculation. And the EEOC is rejecting that and saying, no, no, that's not how it works to split up who's going to get what from a fund like this. And again, they're implicitly accusing California of playing fast and loose with what's actually happening here to make them look bad and to make California look good. The provision of private counsel to potential claimants is not only fair, but serves as a safeguard for individuals' rights. The independent counsel provision is designed to safeguard rights by providing a neutral third party whom the individuals have a right to select and who represents their interests. DFEH argues that the amount of attorney's fees and or amount of time provided for is insufficient, 450 bucks or an hour. However, similar provisions requiring defendants to pay for advice of private counsel for potential claimants for similar amounts of time or fees have been routinely approved by the courts in EEOC consent decrees. Here's a list of a dozen times in which you have done that. Courts, including this one, routinely approve EEOC consent decrees without requesting to review the release of claims. That is because the courts have trusted the federal government to carry out its duties to serve the public interest. If the court determines a review is necessary, the parties will provide a copy of the purpose of the proposed release to the court, but such a review is not within the department's power to request, and it should not be within the state's power to edit releases in a separate federal case. So they say, look, you don't usually ask us to provide the release documents, but you also don't usually have an angry California agency asking you to take a look at it. If you want to see it, Your Honor, you can see it, and you can ask for changes. You're the court, but it shouldn't be the state of California that is pushing this along. So that's the merits arguments, right? And they do reflect what I spoke to you about when we were looking at the California complaint, which is that they have a lot of complaints that don't seem to be borne out even in the documents that they presented to the court. They are complaining about having private counsel potentially release more claims. They're complaining about destroying evidence, which simply didn't make any sense at all and unfortunately got repeated in so many places. But even with that merits argument, it's not actually what the EEOC thinks is the big problem here. And like I said, even with all those asides, even with those footnotes, even with those subtweet-like sentences in this document, it doesn't quite get to the nuclear arsenal effect that they do in their actual answer. So let's finally, an hour in, take a look at how the EEOC might just have destroyed California's entire case. Here's the EEOC's actual response document. Plaintiff EEOC files this opposition in response to proposed intervener Department of Fair Employment and Housing's ex parte application to shorten time. While the EEOC opposes the department's motion to intervene on the merits, that's what we just went through, the present intervention motion should also be disallowed because, as explained below, it arises from representation prohibited by the California Rules of Professional Conduct. Those are the rules, the ethical rules, that govern how a lawyer operates here in the state of California, but every state is going to have their own professional conduct rules. Specifically, two DFEH attorneys who play leadership roles within the organization previously served as EEOC redacted who helped to direct the EEOC's investigation into Commissioner's Charge number 480-2018-05212 against Activision Blizzard, Inc. 
we should stop. The accusation here is that some of the folks who helped to direct the EEOC's own investigation left with whatever information, confidential sources, knowledge of strategy, anything else, went to work at the state of California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing and then led or helped lead the Department of Fair Employment and Housing's investigation and litigation against Activision Blizzard. And if that doesn't sound horrible to you, chances are you haven't been through a legal ethics course, but just like we discussed earlier in this video, that represents a massive, massive conflict of interest. Let's continue. These same attorneys then proceeded to represent the department in connection with these intervention proceedings, which seek to oppose the consent decree that arose out of the very investigation they helped to direct while at the EEOC. Such representation is prohibited by the California Rule of Professional Conduct 111A2, and this conflict is imputed to all Department of Fair Employment Housing attorneys by virtue of California Rule of Professional Conduct 111B because of the department's failure to screen the individual attorneys. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. But suffice it to say, if you don't handle things right and you have this existing relationship and you go to a different government agency and they don't put up a firewall because you're not allowed to bring in information that you've gained in another capacity over to your new firm here at Department of Estate, if you don't put up that firewall, your entire firm is effectively tainted. And that might affect basically everything. After being informed of this conflict, the department retained new counsel, but appears to have filed the, pre the present intervention motion just hours after this counsel was retained, strongly suggesting that the motion is a product of the prohibited representation. So here we have a situation where the EEOC tried to tell California that this was an issue and told them in a couple of places, which we won't go over the specifics of, California denied that it was an issue until the EEOC basically refused to talk to them on a phone call that was called on this particular issue, whether or not they should intervene against the consent decree that the EEOC had filed with the court. After the EEOC presented strongly that they would not talk to these people on this score, they changed counsel to an outside counsel, but filed the intervention motion within hours of that change. So here the EEOC is effectively accusing the state of California, not just of ethical breaches, which of course is the bulk of this document, but also of lying of saying, you're saying that this intervention motion is not tainted by the involvement of these people, but that can't possibly be the case on the timeline presented. Like I said, the EEOC here is using its nuclear arsenal because even though they are directing this against specifically the intervention, the fact that the state of California is trying to intervene against the consent decree that the EEOC has entered into, there is no real reason that the arguments presented here by the EEOC couldn't apply to much, much more of what the department has put together against Activision Blizzard, depending on the timing in which these people went from the EEOC over to that department. Let's continue talking about it. First, we get the factual background, and these are referred to, for purposes of attorney-client privilege, as DFEH Attorneys 1 and 2. When you see those designations, those are the people that went from the EEOC to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, at least according to the EEOC. Now, you also see a lot of redacted bars. This isn't a CIA document all of a sudden, but... EEOC, rightly, is concerned about attorney-client privilege. They're describing what these people advised them on, what they presumably advised the DFEH on, and all of that doesn't really belong in the public record. They do point out, however, that attorneys one and two engaged in active supervision of subordinate trial attorneys and had authority to direct and improve their work, and that attorney two was delegated key authority with respect to the Activision investigation in her role as a redacted. For example, redacted. So we can't actually evaluate these kinds of things, but we have no reason to believe that the EEOC would just straight up lie about what this individual's role was 
at the agency, and that creates a whole bunch of problems. Now, what are those problems? Well, it's not just impropriety, but it is the appearance of impropriety. As the EEOC says here, it is clear that the department's own attorneys, including attorneys one and two, represented the department in connection with the intervention proceedings at least until October 5th, 2021. As discussed above, these attorneys authored a series of emails between September 29th, 2021 and October 1st, 2021 regarding the department's intent to intervene. In addition, these attorneys appeared for the meet and confer, the teleconference on October 5th, after being notified of the EEOC's objections, and attorney two attempted to discuss the merits of the intervention motion, which the EEOC flatly refused to do until someone else got on the phone call. Now, why is this an issue? California's Rule of Professional Conduct 111, enacted on November 1st, 2018, is entitled Special Conflicts of Interest for Former and Current Government Officials and Employees. And I did, as I do here in Virtual Gallery, I checked these all out uh, for you, but the EEOC appears to describe them uh, well, uh, both on comments basis and in the language itself. What does 111A say? It says, except as the law may otherwise expressly permit, which is not really an issue here, a lawyer who has formally served as a public official or employee of the government, if you worked at the EEOC, then you're subject to various rules and you shall not otherwise represent a client in connection with a matter in which you participated personally and substantially as a public official or employee, unless the government agency gives its informed written consent to the representation. So you worked at the EEOC, you were bringing up a claim against Activision, you were bringing up a claim against somebody else, you moved to a different firm. Under the California rules, assuming you're practicing in California, you agree that you won't represent somebody against in connection with a matter that you work for a different government agency on. It says rule 111A2 provides an exception where the appropriate government agency gave informed written consent, but it is undisputed that there has been no such consent by the EEOC here. If all of this is as the EEOC describes, then the state of California has a real, real problem. Now you might be wondering about that personally and substantially. That's what the EEOC then goes forward to try to establish says the term personal participation includes both direct participation and the supervision of a subordinate's participation. Here it is clear that the department attorneys one and two participated personally and substantially in, you know, this. All redacted, uh, but presumably the EEOC lays out a case there. And it says rule 111 indicates that this sort of direct advice and guidance regarding the substantive merits and strategy of a case constitutes personal and substantial participation. Personal and substantial participation may occur when, for example, a lawyer participates through recommendation, investigation, or the rendering of advice in a particular manner. So you sit down across the desk from me and you ask me for my advice. That's my personal and substantial participation, even if you go against it. I've participated in the matter. And that raises all of these potential ethical issues. Second, the EEOC says, both attorneys also engaged in active supervision of subordinate trial attorneys and had authority to direct and approve their work. In sum, both attorneys participated directly and through active supervision in actions going to the heart of the merits of this matter. Further, California Professional Rule of Conduct 111B provides that when a lawyer is prohibited from representation under paragraph A, no lawyer in a firm with which that lawyer is associated may knowingly undertake or continue representation in such a matter unless the prohibited lawyer is screened from any participation in the matter and is apportioned no part of the fee therefrom and written notice is promptly given to the appropriate government agency to enable it to ascertain compliance with the provisions of this rule. So first of all, it's important to note that the use of the term firm in the California Rules of Professional Conduct in most other states will incorporate agencies, sub-agencies, municipalities within governments. 
because that's intended to control legal action in whatever these bodies might be. So here it says, okay, you've got somebody coming over from the EEOC. We don't really want to harm people's ability to go between employers. So they can go over, but they have to be screened. Why do they have to be screened? They have information. Whether or not that's strategy, whether or not that's just in their head, they have information that could be in conflict, that could be using their position with the other agency in a manner that is problematic. That's that image of impropriety, even if it's not intended. And if you screen them, you can still work as a firm here as the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. If you don't, you can't. And even if you do screen them, you have to go and give written notice to the EEOC so that they can follow your firewall process and make sure that your people are properly separated out from what would be a conflict of interest or potential actual disclosure violations. Here, says the EEOC, the department met neither the screening nor notice obligations. First, there is no claim that the department promptly provided written notice to the EEOC. Second, it is clear that the department failed to timely screen attorneys one and two for participation in these intervention proceedings as discussed above, and it's redacted here, but they did mention they were on phone calls, they were on email chains, and so there can be no claim that there was timely isolation of these lawyers from any participation in representing the department in connection with the intervention proceedings as would be necessary to show that timely screening took place. Thus, all Department of Fair Employment housing attorneys were and should remain barred from representing the department in this matter. You put those two rules together, the EEOC says the department itself should be barred from representing the state of California in this matter. And if you look at this and you say, well, okay, that's focused on the intervention proceedings. But if this is an issue, when did it happen? If it happened before this intervention just occurred, which it would seem likely is the case, then how much were they touching the department's actual action against Activision Blizzard? Because if they were strategizing with information that they got from the EOC, just if they were present and it looked like they could have been, there are major, major issues with the department and the state of California. Then the EEOC tells the courts what they think it should do. This says federal courts have inherent powers to manage their own proceedings, including the ability to craft appropriate remedies for violations of ethical rules. DFEH's intervention motion is the product of prohibited representation. Even assuming that the department retained present counsel at 8.52 a.m. on October 6th, it beggars belief to conclude that present counsel could have authored the intervention motion in the 11 hours that elapsed before filing without relying on the work product of the California attorneys. The DFEH attorneys should be barred from providing work product or advising present counsel regarding the intervention. Case law recognizes the propriety of barring these attorneys from providing work product to or engaging in further consultation with successor counsel in certain circumstances in applying the pertinent tests. Courts have looked to the extent to which the prior and subsequent representation were factually related and the relevance of the general and specific knowledge gained through prior representation to the subsequent representation. And they also offer, the EOC says, look, if current counsel for the department disputes that the intervention motion constitutes the work product of DFEH attorneys, we're amenable to counsel filing a declaration under penalty of perjury detailing the steps they took to prepare the motion and the extent to which they did or did not consult with or rely on work prepared by department attorneys. Sure, you go right ahead and file a document. We'll check it out, which I think the EOC feels pretty confident they're going to be unwilling to do. Here, they continue, the general and specific knowledge that the department attorneys one and two gained in their prior representation of the EEOC is highly relevant and closely factually related to their subsequent representation of the department. Indeed, they are seeking to oppose the very consent decree that arose from the investigation they helped to direct while at the EEOC. Here, as in precedent, DFEH attorneys one and two gained information about the merits of the EEOC's legal theories and other confidential information about the Activision investigation 
During their prior representation, these circumstances plainly demonstrate at least a reasonable possibility of confidential information being used in the formation of or being passed to substitute counsel through the work product of the DFEH attorneys. And the need for a robust protective remedy is especially great given the unique circumstances of this case where two former EEOC attorneys intimately involved in investigating charges against Activision while at the EEOC now seek to oppose the consent decree that is the culmination of that very investigation. While Rule 111A's prohibition on representation applies regardless of whether the lawyer in question is adverse to a former client, the concerns animating the rule are at their zenith where the interests are directly opposed. And I highlighted this not because they're wrong or anything of the sort. EEOC is correct here to say, hey, this is bad, period. But it's worse. It's at its zenith when you're actually opposing the client that you used to provide services to. That you've gone, you've violated the code of professional conduct, you've taken whatever information you've had, you've got issues with impropriety, conflicts of interest, non-disclosure, whatever it might be, attorney-client privilege, and then you go and oppose what you were working on before. This is the very height of a tainted attorney and law firm. But note, while Rule 111A's prohibition on representation applies regardless, applies to what the department did against Activision separate from the EEOC. And that might not sound fair to you. And in fact, it probably wouldn't be. But ethics rules are important. And it would appear, if this is as described by the EEOC, that the state of California was playing fast and loose with this stuff. If you think it's odd, if you think these are really technical or weird requirements, I can tell you, I've worked at big law firms for a long, long time. And virtually every week, but at least every month, you get screening emails. You get, hey, Bob or Mary or Susan, they're coming over from a different firm. They're coming over from the state government of Michigan, wherever it might be. You need to screen them from the following matters. These are the things they worked on when they were in that particular role. They cannot be a party to conversations or document sharing or anything else related to these matters because these ethical rules, these conflict of interest rules are so, so important to the practice of law. This is not some technical footfall in the back pages of a legal encyclopedia from the 1600s. This is the bare minimum essence of ethical representation. And the EEOC is calling the state of California out and realistically doesn't care that this could blow up the entirety of the representation and litigation against Activision Blizzard. In fact, I would expect Activision Blizzard to bring this up in their response document. And that's a big problem for the state of California. Why is this so important in particular with respect to government employees? It says courts have articulated special concerns in the context of potential violations by government attorneys for the following reasons. First, because government attorneys may have had access to more kinds of information in connection with the prior representation than private attorneys typically do. There is a greater potential for misuse of information, including information that is not necessarily confidential in nature. Second, the public is generally more concerned about government improprieties than about private improprieties. Thus, the appearance problem is more severe because the public is likely to be more critical of this potential misuse of information. For all these reasons, the appropriate remedy requested by the EEOC to address the violation of Rule 111 in this case is to disallow the department's intervention motion and bar the department's counsel from providing further work product or advice to its new outside counsel. If the court is inclined to accept the motion for intervention, if it doesn't believe anything that we just said, we respectively submit that opposition to the, mo that opposition to the motion that we discussed before we looked 
at this document. This is an absolute bombshell kind of document from the EEOC, absolutely laying waste to the state of California. Primarily, I would argue, obviously speculative, because of the way the state of California handled their work sharing agreement, handled bringing harassment claims, ignored their settlement negotiations, brought them up to journalistic outlets as problematic, allowed for the EEOC to be raked over the coals on this amount of money that both sides knew was reasonable for what the EEOC statutory requirements and general settlement disposition were. And now you see the full breadth and power of an angry federal organization. The EEOC is taking no prisoners on this. And my guess is the state of California wishes that they hadn't done it in exactly this way. If you enjoy these conversations about technology, business, law, Activision, Riot, the EEOC, and more, please consider supporting the channel. If you get value from this, consider supporting us. We've got a Patreon. We've got other ways to support the channel below, including sponsoring specific episodes. Once again, special thanks to Falkus Vipus for doing that for this episode, or just subscribing, telling your friends, upvoting, downvoting, sharing this kind of information in various forums, wherever you might find yourself on the internet. Every single little bit helps to help bring more virtual legality and more episodes of this and other types to you. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.